0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, everyone. Um, for this month of September, as I shared last Sunday, we're kind of camping on uh, Luke chapter 21 which is, as I had mentioned in the first sermon on the series, uh, it's arguably the most controversial, hotly debated passages in all of the Gospels. And it's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's this extended prophecy that Jesus gives about the uh, end of history, how the world is going to come to an end. And so um, last week I, I gave kind of a, a big overview of what was happening and we're going to try to zoom in a little bit more tightly in the different sections of this Olivet Discourse in these coming weeks. And so today I want to read verses 5 to 19 in Luke chapter 21. And the title of the message for this morning is Bearing Witness. And it reads starting in verse 5. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here on one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nations will rise against nations, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Let's pray. God, these are difficult words, not just to understand, but to accept. Um, And this world that is being described to us in these words seems like such a, a foreign place to us, living in America. Where many times it seems like we are living in the lap of luxury and comfort. And the idea of persecution or suffering um, seems so remote to us. So open our eyes to see the truth of these prophecies that Christ declared to his disciples that we would gain a heart of understanding and a faith to ready ourselves for the things that lie ahead. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, May 18, 1980, uh, Mount St. Helens in Washington State erupted in spectacular fashion. Now, some of you are probably too young. Some of you may not have even been born when that happened. But some of you, I think, probably can remember that time. For months leading up to this massive eruption of this volcano, the U.S. Geological Survey and the U.S. Forest Service were monitoring the situation very closely and giving constant updates on Mount St. Helens. The little small earthquakes that were happening all around the mountain little eruptions and craters that were being formed, these explosions of steam and avalanches. So when the volcano finally erupted on May 18th, um, everyone was expecting it. It was just a matter of the exact day that no one knew. The people living in the area of Mount St. Helens were given ample warning for weeks. Thousands of people were evacuated out of the danger zone. And here's the Sad part of the story, though, is despite all of that, 57 people died because of Mount St. Helens. Why? It's because despite all of the warnings, they refused to leave their homes. Although I was only 11 at the time, um, I still remember the picture shown on the news of the victims that were killed in their cars as they tried to outrun the burning ash that was falling down like fire from the sky. And many of these people were incinerated in their vehicles as they were driving. What's so tragic about these deaths was the senselessness of it. These people didn't have to die. There were plenty of warnings Plenty of time to flee to safety. Um, Throughout the Bible, we find warnings about the events that are going to take place at the end of history. In addition to the Gospels, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation um, really capture a lot of the teaching in the Bible on the subject of the end times. The problem is that when we put all these prophecies about the end times together, it still creates a pretty confusing picture that's hard to understand. If you ever read apocalyptic literature in the Bible, you understand what I mean by this. Um, But when we do put all the teaching together, there are clearly some elements of what is going to happen in the end times that is not debated, that's very clear. Probably the clearest is the return of Jesus. This is the most important element of the end times is that Jesus says, one day I'm coming back. When Jesus was taken up to heaven after his death and resurrection, we find this account in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, it says, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6-7 to seven, says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well this will happen when the lord jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels there are dozens of verses like this in the new testament that make it absolutely clear this doctrine of what we call the second coming of jesus christ another key element of the events that are going to unfold in the end times is what is known as the rapture, the rapture. The Greek word for rapture literally means to be caught up or to be snatched away. And it refers to the Bible's teaching that there's a day coming, a moment coming in history when all who believe in Jesus Christ in an instant will be taken up into the sky to meet Him there. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 to 17, it says, "'For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven.'" Probably the most disturbing part of these end times prophecies though is an event known as the great tribulation, the great tribulation. It describes a time of suffering on a scale and a depth unprecedented in human history. Mark chapter 13 verse 19 says, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Revelation chapter 7, verse 13 to 14 says, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb a time of suffering that has never been experienced in all of history up to that moment. And the picture is of the church being much at the center of that suffering, being persecuted for its faith in Jesus Christ. One last component to these end times that I want to bring up is what's known as the millennium, the millennium. It's a period at the end of history that describes a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. And the only passage that really directly captures that event is Revelation chapter 20. Starting in verse verse 4, it says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, there are other elements in these end times prophecies, like the rise of an antichrist figure who is going to lead a lot of people astray and cause so much suffering on this earth. Uh, but... Um, These are the major elements that I've just described for you. Now, one of the problems is it's difficult to know the timeline here. It's hard to know the exact order in which these events are going to unfold. Probably one of the biggest questions we have is, is that rapture going to happen before or after the tribulation? In other words, if we are going to live through these events, are we going to have to go through the tribulation or not, okay? Um, And it's difficult to put a clear picture to these events because the prophecies in Daniel and Revelation and even in the Gospels, like all of it discourse here in Luke 21, are often in confusing language, very figurative language, Uh, Let me give you just an example of one of them. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, it says, Seventy, quote, sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, did you understand that verse? (laughs) It's pretty confusing, isn't it? What exactly are these 77s that Daniel is talking about? Many believe that they refer to weeks, because they're seven days in a week. But the question is, are these literal weeks, or are they figurative weeks? In other words, does each day actually represent a year, so that it's talking about seven years? This is just some of the confusion that arises when we try to interpret these end times prophecies. Jesus alludes to this confusion surrounding our struggle to understand these end time events in the Olivet Discourse. In verse 8, he says, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. And then he says this, don't listen to it. Don't go after them. In other words, Jesus is saying that He's warning his disciples that in the future, people are going to come along in his name, claiming to be his followers, and they're going to say the time of fulfillment that Jesus talked about is right now. All the prophecies have come to fruition, and it's happening. And he says, don't be deceived by their claims. And the truth is that throughout the history of the church, just as Jesus predicted, church leaders have arisen from within our own ranks. And have claimed that the final time has come. In our day, we typically have called these, we've given them a nickname, haven't we? We call them doomsday cults. And they've done tremendous damage to the church. Leading many into false beliefs about the timing of the return of Jesus. In my lifetime alone as a guy in his 40s, I can think of at least four or five major global movements where a church leader came forward and claimed special knowledge in the timing of Jesus' return. And each of them left many followers confused, even disillusioned, once their prediction of the timing didn't come to pass. There's this interesting website called the Rapture Index. I don't know if any of you ever came across it, but it's basically like the Dow Jones Index for end times activity. Okay, And it measures everything from unemployment to to inflation, to liberalism, to Christian persecution, to earthquakes, and they, on their website they provide the following scale. If the index is less than 100, it's slow prophetic activity. If it's 100 to 130, it's moderate. If it's 130 to 160, it's heavy, and then this is literally what it says, greater than 160, fasten your seat belts, okay? Now, as of five days ago, we're at an index of 188 so I guess fasten your seat belts okay now I hear the laughter in our congregation Um, is this the kind of speculation that Jesus wants from his followers there is undoubtedly repeated commands in the Bible for Christians to be ready for Jesus' return. Luke chapter 21, verse 28. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Matthew 24, verse 44, which is Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse. It says, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour than when you do not expect. So there is a call For every generation of god's people to be ready for these end times but i want to make the argument that there is a world of difference between this kind of general posture of readiness that we're supposed to have and any overreaching claims to have special knowledge to set a date and say god told me this is when the end of the world is going to take place matthew Chapter 24, verse 36 says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And so Jesus warns, a lot of people are going to say, it's now, it's happening. And he says, don't get suckered into that. Nobody knows the hour except the Father alone. In verse 8, Jesus gives particular warning about those who will come claiming to be him in his return. Now, this confusion, the people who raise that concern, it's a legitimate one because 2,000 years ago when Jesus first came to the earth, he came as a humble poor carpenter. And his station in life was so, so confusing, so offensive even to the people of his day that they said, there's no way that this guy could be the Messiah. <laughs> he, he doesn't fit the bill. He's just a carpenter. And so they legitimately wonder, when Jesus keeps talking about him returning, is it going to be the same way? Are we going to be looking at some plumber in Ottawa and saying, is that guy the Messiah? Because <laughs> he says he is. And Jesus says, No, it's not going to happen like that. When I come again, it's going to be totally different. It's not going to be subtle. We looked at this some months back. In Luke 17, verse 23 to 24. Men will tell you, There he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. We all know what it's like, don't we, to drive at night through a thunderstorm and have the entire sky lit up from horizon to horizon by a massive arc of lightning, right? You know that experience, right? That's not subtle. And what Jesus says is, when I come back the second time, that's what it's going to be like. Not as a humble carpenter from a backwoods town of Nazareth, I'm going to come in glory with my angels and no one is going to have to doubt, is that Jesus? You will know it's me when I come again. So if anyone happens to come to you after I leave this earth and say, I am Jesus, I've come back. He says, if you don't see the lightning, if you don't hear the trumpet horns, if you don't see the legions of angels, don't believe them. It's not me. As I pointed out last week, um, all of these events that Jesus predicted came true 35 years after he spoke them at the fall of Jerusalem, when the Roman armies sacked Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. But as you look more closely at this Olivet Discourse, it becomes very evident that his predictions, his prophecies are not limited to 8070. Uh, as he points out, after Jerusalem falls in verse 24, he says, We're gonna, the end is not gonna happen right away. That's not the end of history. In fact, there is gonna be a season that he calls the times of the Gentiles that's gonna take over history. And then in verse 27. He talks about his return after all these events have taken place. Now, the return of Jesus clearly didn't happen after Jerusalem fell. It's not like the temple came tumbling down and then Jesus appeared. And so when we read the events of Luke 21, this Olivet Discourse, it becomes clear that these are events that still lie ahead in our future. Well, if the point of these prophecies is not so that we can look at the signs and try to figure out the timing of everything and when exactly Jesus is going to return, then what is the point of a warning? I mean, it, it, it implies that He asks of us to take some action, doesn't it? We find at least part of the answer in verse 9 of Luke 21. It says, And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. That is at the heart of the warning that Jesus gives. Is he's saying, when these things start happening in your lifetime, don't crumble, don't fall apart. Don't ask, where is God? He's nowhere. Because he says, I forewarned you that these things are going to take place. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because here's the thing, is when fear controls us, it drives us away from the will of God. When fear controls us, all we can think about is survival and self-preservation. But look at what Jesus tells his disciples about the perspective they ought to have when they see these signs coming to fruition. In verses 12 to 13, it says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You hear that? He says, when you see this happen, it's like the stage lights are coming on. And he's saying, this is the moment for my followers to shine, to show their true colors, and to bear witness this world in the midst of that darkness in other words what jesus is saying is if you happen to be the generation that is going to live through this unprecedented persecution the goal isn't simply survival i pray to god that i can make it through it intact and alive it is to recognize that throughout history these have been the very moments when Christians have had the greatest opportunity to bear witness to the hope that we have in us because of our faith. Let's be honest here. The degree of suffering that Jesus describes here is almost unbearable. Verses 16 to 17, it says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. He says, in that day, Christians are even going to be betrayed by their own family members. Your faith is going to rip your family apart. And some of you are even going to be asked to lay down your lives. There's going to be a level of intense hatred for Christians that this world has never seen. And and you sort of ask, how can anyone be expected to stand up under pressure like that? I mean, that's a legitimate question that all of us have to wrestle with, right? How do I know if I'm ready for the apocalypse? (laughs) Well, Jesus continues in verses 18 to 19. But not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, this is confusing. How can Jesus say not a hair on your heads will perish? When just a couple sentences earlier, he said, some of you are going to be asked to lay down your lives. It's like he's contradicting himself. And then he says, by your endurance, you will gain your life. I think it's clear that what Jesus is talking about is not life on this earth. He is talking about eternal life. He's saying that I give you a life that this physical death can never take away from you. This is the power behind the Christian witness that enables us not to even fear death itself. It is a courage that says, my life is hidden in God with Christ, and I have nothing that this world can take away from me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 to 40 says this, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samson and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms administered justice and gained what was promised who shut the mouth of lions quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies those are the victories won by faith but then the writer of Hebrews goes on and he says women received back their dead raised to life again others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is not an easy teaching. I don't know, maybe half these seats are going to be empty next week. When I thought about preparing this message, I felt the burden of this. If I want to grow ICC's numbers, this is not a sermon to preach, you know? It's like, what a weird church. What a weird pastor. But as Christians, this is our heritage. This is our story. It is the story of people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, God is more than able to save us from this burning furnace that you're about to throw us into. But Even if he does not, we will not bow to your gods. It is the story of Queen Esther who resolved to stand before the king uninvited even though that was a crime punishable by death. As she declared, if I perish, I perish. It is the story of people who put their hope not in the things that this world has to offer but in the promise of God for a life that is to come. Last week, I told you about how as missionaries in Kenya, our family lived through the ethnic violence that erupted in 2007, right after the presidential election. Um, It's really horrific. There was a tribe that was accused of rigging the election, and as a result, just about all the other tribes in the country turned on them and began massacring them. And then the massacres happened the other way, back and forth. This is a picture of our children on Christmas morning, just a couple days before that violence began, gathered around our homemade Christmas gifts and that Charlie Brown Christmas tree that we had back there. Um, It became real to me when, a few days after that picture was taken, I opened our living room curtain and saw this strange man walking across our backyard, staring me down, carrying an AK-47. We thought that we lived in an area of Kenya where we were gonna be safe, but we realized we found ourselves right in the hotbed of the violence. For days, right outside our window, we saw plumes of smoke as the mobs began burning tires. And we heard the constant sound of gunfire right outside our house. It felt like we were living more in Somalia than in Kenya. What we did was we huddled all of our children into the inmost room in our house, where there were no outside windows, and turned off all the lights in case any bullets happened to hit the house. And we played music pretty loudly in that room hoping that the kids would not hear the gunfire and be scared. The violence kept close, crept closer and closer to our mission base until one day a man was shot right in the hospital compound itself. A false rumor had begun to be spread in the community that the missionaries and the hospital staff were hiding the police captain of the town was from the wrong tribe, the very tribe that these people were hunting down and killing. And so they demanded that we turn this guy over to them when we didn't even know where he was. They even ambushed one of our ambulances as it was trying to leave town in the surrounding forest. They actually set up an ambush and our ambulance driver barely made it out with his life. He was driving in reverse, like 40 miles an hour, through this forest road, in order to get away from them. And as the death toll began to climb in Kenya, the country descended into chaos, and the foreigners began to leave the country in droves, catching every available plane that was flying out of the country. But our mission agency told us that they were not going to implement a mass evacuation of all of their missionaries, but that each missionary family had to decide for themselves whether they were going to stay or whether they were going to go. I think that had to be one of the most difficult decisions that Betty and I made in our lives as we thought about our young children and their safety. But as we prayed and we talked it over, we were convicted that we needed to stay and keep the hospital running despite all the dangers that surrounded us and so we stayed let me say this our decision to stay in the midst of that violence was not an act of humanitarianism or heroism it was simply an act of faith trusting that our life was in God's hands and that even in that broken situation of a country falling apart In ethnic cleansing. That we were called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ in that place. And God took care of us. None of the missionaries, not a single missionary, left that station. And every one of us was kept safe by God to the end. There was no guarantees. We just entrusted ourselves to God. Now I want to say this. I recognize that this is really a hard message for many of us to wrap our minds around, okay? To find any connection with life in America as we typically experience it today. It's like, I think you could be hearing everything I've said up to now and think, well, okay, I guess if I find myself in the midst of the apocalypse, I'll pray that God gives me strength so that I'll have faith. And not deny him. But I want to say this. I believe that this battle between faith and fear. Is one that we face. On a daily basis. How will I know. If I will be a faithful witness. On that day. If this is what I am asked. To endure. For the sake of the gospel. And I'd say this. Is every day. You are confronted with a choice in your life, with many choices in your life, between faith and fear, how you spend your money, how you raise your children, how you respond when you have opportunities to share your faith. This is how we ready ourselves for the apocalypse, how we ready ourselves for the return of Jesus. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is the type of transaction, in other words, that as Christians, we're invited to play out every day in my life. As I think about how I spend my money, my budget, how I treat my kids, it's like that. It's God has promised never to leave me or forsake me. And so every day is an opportunity to exercise that faith and grow in my trust in him. Jesus warns us that troubles lie ahead, but that we can be ready for that day. And the way to be ready for that day is every day is seen as an opportunity to grow And our trust in him. I had a breakfast with a longtime friend recently who's been living overseas for almost a decade now. And over breakfast, we were just talking about the difference between life in America and life in other countries because both of us had lived abroad for some time one of the things that my friend said to me toward the end of this conversation as he reflected on life in America, because he was actually thinking possibly about coming back to America and relocating his family here. But interestingly, he was nervous about it. He wasn't sure he wanted to do it because actually it took leaving America for him to really grow in his faith and experience what it really meant to be committed to Christ. And he said this to me. He said, the biggest danger that we face as Christians in the US is this lie that we can follow Jesus and have it all, right? It's it's a faith that is peddled in this country that doesn't ask anything of us, that costs us nothing. But as we read passages like this Olivet Discourse in Luke 21, Jesus reminds us as his disciples, listen, The battle lines have been drawn. And you need to declare where your allegiance lies, whether it's with him or with this world. And when we feel the weight of that, you're not alone if you feel crushed by it, if you shrink under that. But it is accompanied by this promise, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And let us exercise the truth of that faith every day of our lives. The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org.